You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts. We at HarperCollins have some very happy news. Neil Schusterman's novel, Challenger Deep, has just won the 2015 National Book Award for Young People. Challenger Deep is the story of Caden, a teenage boy who lives in two worlds. One is his real life with his family, his friends, and high school. There, he is paranoid, thinks people are trying to kill him, and demonstrates obsessive-compulsive behaviors. In his other world, he's part of the crew for a pirate captain on a voyage to the Challenger Deep, the ocean's deepest trench. This novel comes from a personal place. Neil Schusterman's author note says it best, and I quote, Challenger Deep is by no means a work of fiction. The places that Caden goes to are all too real. One in three U.S. families is affected by the specter of mental illness. I know because our family is one of them. We faced many of the same things Caden and his family did. I watched as someone I loved journeyed to the deep, and I felt powerless to stop the descent. With the help of my son, I've tried to capture what the descent was like. Twenty years ago, my closest friend, who suffered from schizophrenia, took his own life. But my son, on the other hand, found his piece of sky and escaped gloriously from the deep. Our hope is that Challenger Deep will comfort those who have been there, letting them know that they are not alone. We also hope that it will help others to empathize and to understand what it's like to sail the dark, unpredictable waters of mental illness. And when the abyss looks into you, and it will, may you look back unflinching. We hope that you'll enjoy the opening chapters of Challenger Deep, written by Neil Schusterman and read by Michael Coran Dorsano. Chapter 1 Fee-fi-fo-fum. There are two things you know. One, you were there. Two, you couldn't have been there. Holding these two incompatible truths together takes skill at juggling. Of course, juggling requires a third ball to keep the rhythm smooth. That third ball is time, which bounces much more wildly than any of us would like to believe. The time is 5 a.m. You know this because there's a battery-powered clock on your bedroom wall that ticks so loudly you sometimes have to smother it with a pillow. And yet, while it's 5 in the morning here, it's also 5 in the evening somewhere in China, proving that incompatible truths make perfect sense when seen with global perspective. You've learned, however, that sending your thoughts to China is not always a good thing. Your sister sleeps in the next room, and in the room beyond that, your parents. Your dad is snoring. Soon, your mom will nudge him enough to make him roll over and the snoring will cease, maybe until dawn. All of this is normal, and there's great comfort in that. Across the street, a neighbor's sprinklers come on, hissing loud enough to drown out the ticking of the clock. You can smell the sprinkler mist through the open window, mildly chlorinated, heavily fluoridated. Isn't it nice to know that the neighborhood lawns will have healthy teeth? The hiss of the sprinklers is not the sound of snakes, 
and the painted dolphins on your sister's wall cannot plot deadly schemes, and a scarecrow's eyes do not see. Even so, there are nights where you can't sleep because these things you juggle take all of your concentration. You fear that one ball might drop, and then what? You don't dare imagine beyond that moment, because waiting in that moment is the captain. He's patient, and he waits. Always. Even before there was a ship, there was the captain. This journey began with him. You suspect it will end with him, and everything between is the powdery meal of windmills that might be giants grinding bones to make their bread. Tread lightly, or you'll wake them. Chapter 2 Forever Down There There's no telling how far down it goes, the captain says, the left side of his mustache twitching like the tail of a rat. Fall into the unknowable abyss, and you'd be counting the days before you reach the bottom. But the trench has been measured, I dare to point out. People have been down there before. I happen to know that. It's 6.8 miles deep. No, he mocks. How can a shivering malnourished pup such as you know anything beyond the wetness of his own nose? Then he laughs at his own assessment of me. The captain is full of weather-worn wrinkles from a lifetime at sea, although his dark, tangled beard hides many of them. When he laughs, the wrinkles stretch tight, and you can see the muscles and sinews of his neck. Aye, it be true that those who have ventured the waters of the trench speak of having seen the bottom, but they lie. They lie like a rug and get beat twice as often, but just so it scares the dust out of them. I've stopped trying to decipher the things the captain says, but they still weigh on me, as if maybe I'm missing something. Something important and deceptively obvious that I'll only understand when it's too late to matter. It's forever down there, the captain says. Let no one tell you any different. Chapter 3 Better for This I have this dream. I'm lying on a table in an overlit kitchen where all the appliances are sparkling white. Not so much new as pretending to be new. Plastic with chrome accents, but mostly plastic. I cannot move, or I don't want to move, or I'm afraid to move. Each time I have the dream, it's a little bit different. There are people around me, only they aren't people. They're monsters in disguise. They have gone into my mind and have ripped images from it, turning the pages into masks that look like people I love. But I know it's just a lie. They laugh and speak of things that mean nothing to me. And I am frozen there among all the false faces at the very center of attention. They admire me, but only in the way you admire something you know will soon be gone. I think you took it out too soon, says a monster wearing my mother's face. It hasn't been in long enough. Only one way to find out, says the monster disguised as my father. I sense laughter all around. Not from their mouths, because the mouths of their mask don't move. The laughter is in their thoughts, which they project at me like poison-tipped darts shot from their cut-out eyes. You'll be better for this, says one of the other monsters. Then their stomachs rumble as loud as a crumbling mountain, 
as they reach toward me and tear their main course to bits with their claws. Chapter 4 How They Get You I can't remember when this journey began. It's like I've always been here, except that I couldn't have been, because there was a before. Just last week, or last month, or last year. I'm pretty certain that I'm still fifteen, though. Even if I've been on board this wooden relic of a ship for years, I'm still fifteen. Time is different here. It doesn't move forward. It sort of moves sideways, like a crab. I don't know many of the other crewmen. Or maybe I just don't remember them from one moment to the next because they all have a nameless quality about them. There are the older ones, who seem to have made their lives at sea. These are the ship's officers, if you can call them that. They are Halloween pirates, like the captain with fake blackened teeth, trick-or-treating on hell's doorstep. I'd laugh at them if I didn't believe with all my heart that they'd gouge my eyes out with their plastic hooks. Then there are the younger ones, like me. Kids whose crimes cast them out of warm homes, or cold homes, or no homes, by a parental conspiracy that sees all with unblinking big brother eyes. My fellow crewmates, both boys and girls, go about their busy work and don't speak to me other than to say things like, You're in my way! Or, Keep your hands off my stuff! As if any of us has stuff worth guarding. Sometimes I try to help them with whatever they're doing, but they turn away, or push me away, resentful that I even offered. I keep imagining I see my little sister on board, even though I know she's not. Aren't I supposed to be helping her with math? In my mind, I see her waiting for me, and waiting for me. But I don't know where she is. All I know is that I never show up. How could I do that to her? Everyone on board is under constant scrutiny by the captain who is somehow familiar and somehow not. He seems to know everything about me, although I know nothing about him. It's my business to have my fingers curled around the heart of your business, he told me. The captain has an eye patch and a parrot. The parrot has an eye patch and a security badge around his neck. I shouldn't be here, I appeal to the captain, wondering if I've told him this before. I have midterms, and papers due, and dirty clothes I never picked up from my bedroom floor. And I have friends, lots of friends. The captain's jaw is fixed, and he offers no response. But the parrot says, You'll have friends, lots of friends here too, here too. Then one of the other kids whispers in my ear, Don't tell the parrot anything. That's how they get you. Chapter 5 I am the compass. The things I feel cannot be put into words, or if they can, the words are in no language anyone can understand. My emotions are talking in tongues. Joy spins into anger, spins into fear, then into amused irony like leaping from a plane, arms wide, knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that you can fly, then discovering you can't. And not only don't you have a parachute, but you don't have any clothes on, and the people below all have binoculars and are laughing as you plummet to a highly embarrassing doom. The navigator tells me not to worry about it. He points to the parchment pad on which I often draw to pass the time. Fix your feelings in line and color, he tells me. Color, collar, holler, dollar, true riches lie 
in the way your drawings grab me, scream at me, force me to see. My maps show us the path, but your visions show us the way. You are the compass, Caden Bosch. You are the compass. If I'm a compass, then I'm a pretty useless one, I tell him. I can't find north. Of course you can, he says. It's just that in these waters, north is constantly chasing its own tail. It makes me think of a friend I once had, who thought that north was whatever direction he was facing. Now I think that maybe he was right. The navigator requested me as a roommate when my old roommate, who I barely even remember, disappeared without explanation. We share a cabin that's too small for one, much less two. You are the most decent among the indecents here, he tells me. Your heart hasn't taken on the chill of the sea. Plus you have talent, talent, talons, tally, envy. Your talent will turn this ship green with envy. Mark my words. He's a kid who's been on many voyages before, and he's far-sighted. That is to say, when he looks at you, he's not seeing you, but instead sees something behind you, in a dimension several times removed from our own. Mostly, he doesn't look at people. He's too busy creating navigational charts. At least, that's what he calls them. They're full of numbers and words and arrows and lines that connect the dots of stars into constellations I've never seen before. The heavens are different out here, he says. You have to see fresh patterns in the stars. Patterns, satins, Saturday, Sunday, sundial. It's all about measuring the passing day. Do you get it? No. Shore to boat, boat to goat, that's the answer I'm saying. The goat. It eats everything, digesting the world, making it a part of its own DNA and spewing it out, claiming its territory. Territory, heredity, heresy, hearsay. Hear what I say. The sign of the goat holds the answer to our destination. It all has a purpose. Seek the goat. The navigator is brilliant. So brilliant that my head hurts just being in his presence. Why am I here? I ask him. If everything has a purpose, what is my purpose on this ship? He goes back to his charts, writing words and adding fresh arrows on top of what is already there, layering his thoughts so thick only he can decipher them. Purpose, porpoise, dolphin, door frame, doorway. You are the doorway to the salvation of the world. Me? Are you sure? Just as sure as we're on this train. Chapter 6 So Disruptive Doorway, doorframe, dolphins, dancing on the walls of my sister's room as I stand in her doorway. There are seven dolphins. I know because I painted them for her, each representing one of Kurosawa's seven samurai, since I wanted her to still appreciate them when she's older. The dolphins glare at me tonight, and although a lack of opposable thumbs makes swordplay unlikely, I find them far more threatening than usual. My father is tucking Mackenzie into bed. It's late for her, but not for me. 
I've just turned 15. She's about to turn 11. It will be hours until I sleep. If I sleep. I may not. Not tonight. My mother is on the phone with Grandma downstairs. I hear her talking about weather and termites. Our house is being chewed to bits. But tenting is so disruptive, I hear my mom say. There must be a better way. Dad kisses Mackenzie goodnight, then turns and sees me standing there. Not quite in, but not quite out of the room. What is it, Caden? Nothing. It's just... Never mind. He stands up and my sister rolls away to face her wall of dolphins, making it clear she is ready for dreamland. If something's wrong, you can tell me, Dad says. You know that, don't you? I speak quietly so that Mackenzie can't hear. Well, it's just that there's this kid at school. Yes? Of course, I can't be sure. Yes? Well, I think he wants to kill me. Thank you for listening. This episode was edited by Kat Theck with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from the leading figures across books, culture, and the arts. All brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.